Net-A-Porter presents The Incredible Women Podcast, Series 2, Changemakers. After a year like no other, celebrating changemakers has never been more relevant. I'm Sarah Bailey, and in this episode, I am thrilled to be talking to Aranya Johar. Aranya Johar is a 22-year-old Indian spoken word artist who uses poetry to challenge stigma and prejudice and change minds. She started writing at just 10 years old, performing in clubs at 12 with the support of her mother, who surely qualifies as a changemaker herself. Her most famous poem, A Brown Girl's Guide to Gender, which lifted the lid on misogyny, acid attacks, rape in marriage, and the sexualization of girls, is hard-hitting and candid and incredibly brave. If this feels like a conversation you don't want to hear right now, please explore the other great episodes in the series and come back to it in your own time. If you want a sense of Aranya's impact, A Brown Girl's Guide to Gender has been watched over a billion times. She is a clear, unflinching voice on gender equality on the global stage. In fact, she is one of the youngest ever members of the G7 Gender Equality Advisory Council. At home in India, from where she joins us today, she is a prolific performer, curator and poetry scene maker. Aranya Johar, it's an absolute pleasure to be speaking to you today. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's so lovely to be here. It's lovely to have these kind of conversations at a time like this. So how are you today? Where are you today? I am currently in Bombay. It is about 3.30 now and it's a very sunny day as it usually is in Bombay. We don't really have seasons apart from the sun and rain. But even here, we're trying our best to stay safe with the COVID guidelines and I'm still trying to explore my work in a way that's a little more digital given the fact that we're trying to respect the guidelines given Oh, thank you. Well, I'm I'm here in a beautiful sunny day in London. I wanted to start our conversation actually by taking you back to your very genesis as a spoken word artist. Can you remember the first time that you heard sort of slam poetry being performed? And what was it about it that interested you? And why do you think it holds such a power to change minds? I feel like there have definitely been specific spoken word and slam poetry pieces that have influenced my work. But a big trigger for me to start writing was very honestly hip-hop. Hip-hop has so much poetry in it. There's so much storytelling. It's used as a form of dissent, used as a form of protest poetry. So when I started exploring rap a little bit more when I was younger, I realized that this was something I wanted to explore. And this was one way it came out. I don't think I'm ready to start rapping it, even though I'm working on it. So we're exploring what I want to do with form of art that I feel a little bit more comfortable with. So that's how I got into spoken word more seriously. I feel like I'm generally a very dramatic person. So I get to bring the theatrics when I'm uh, performing a piece and, you know, play a little part in a story I'm attempting to tell. 
but i feel people don't realize how much of literature and poetry plays a part in not only what we engage with in terms of you know academics if you were reading something but even the advertisements you watch are a form of storytelling the music you listen to is connecting with you over a story that they want you to hear a story that they want you to experience maybe connect with so i would say it's definitely poetry but it's been largely influenced by hip hop i'd love to know apart from hip hop and i completely understand you know that the power that that has and you know the the poetry which is within that who were the other influences on you growing up i mean your mother sounds like a pretty incredible woman 100% my mother has played such a big part in my upbringing both my parents have always encouraged individuality between my brother and i i think you know even when we were exploring things at an age where other people in our age group weren't exploring they were still very supportive of it i remember uh, when i was younger and i was exploring korean music they were very understanding and uh, they would listen to some of the songs i would send them and um, it also like comes through in my work you know a lot of the work i get to do comes with the privilege that i have a family that is comfortable with me saying the things i say on a platform with my face connected to it you know when you connect your face to it it comes with a certain amount of responsibility our family you know knows about it because my face is associated with my work so my parents have played a big part in you know enabling me to explore poetry especially like with the kind of topics i approach but apart from you know my parents enabling this there've definitely been a few poets like Maggie Smith we have Sara Kane Filke there's Crystal Valentine there's so many poets that i only learned off because of the internet and in india if you were to learn about literature or poetry we primarily uh, learn of poets from the 19th 20th century usually males who are white but it's been such a wonderful way to explore literature when you learn of writers who have lived a life like you or who have lived a life completely unlike you but don't get the platforms that conventionally are there for people who are often affluent background i think it comes back with hip hop as well you know you're presented with perspectives that you would never otherwise be forced to experience be forced to live for a moment it's such an interesting point and and i completely agree that the internet has given an opportunity for us to to discover diverse modern and relevant voices in poetry absolutely what was the first poem you ever performed aranya so i think the first poem i ever performed was probably when i was around i think as you mentioned 11 12 we didn't have as many open mics in the city then i think we barely had two or three and for all of them you had to be above the age of 18 but uh, my brother and my mom and i we would try to like sneak me into clubs <laughs> but once the organizers found out that i was just there for the sad poetry recitation and not to get intoxicated they were a lot more understanding to get me in but it's so lovely to see that there's a lot more platforms now and um i think there's also more conversation about the kind of impact art has now and it's great that we're reaching that conversation here locally in bombay um, i just love that image of you and your mum and your brother and the conspiracy that is just <laughs> wonderful i remember us being like i'll be in the middle so you say this <laughs> i'll say this you know we had a whole plan of action and then you know we eased into it and i think it, the incredible honor i had of beginning to perform early is that i got to watch a lot of senior poets 
at a young age so i could grow into that with their guidance at a point where my art was still very permeable where i could still play with it a lot i was a little apprehensive but i was still very open to exploring things and i think that comes through with the work you know that's online now that like brown girls guide to gender brown girls guide to beauty even um the stuff i'm trying to write now it's definitely evolved but you can see traces of it from when i began and the artists i was following even then let's talk about your most famous poem a brown girls guide to gender tell us about the journey to writing that piece so we had an event coming up and this friend of mine was organizing it his name is simar he runs unerase poetry and we've been friends for a lot longer before and he said it's a women's day event and i primarily wrote about mental health and mental illnesses at that time i definitely wanted to write about gender issues but i never felt like i a had an opportunity and b when it comes to writing about something like you know feminism that's written about so extensively i feel like if i don't have something of value or something unique to offer then i'm not really offering anything so when i got the chance to really write about gender issues and you know i started writing that piece first thing was at that age i was still in school and i would never cuss and all of my friends used to pull my leg about it and the one video that goes up has me cussing oh multiple God. times <laughs> <laughs> and um i remember i was in my mother's room while writing brown girls guide to gender went through a few round of edits but it all happened over one night so i wrote the skeleton of the piece and i called my dad up a few friends up i read it to them got their feedback added some things removed some things but the only thing that I wasn't sure I wanted was the morning which ended up being such an important integral part of the piece but I think what was holding me back was that I felt vulnerable at that time doing something like that you know but I think that's really what demanded it it demanded of that because I feel as a nation not only as a nation you'll probably see this worldwide we've become so desensitized to the kind of violence women face and it's unfortunate but it's true we've gotten so i i was i won't say we've gotten comfortable but it's become such it's become so normal to hear about someone going through something and especially in india where there's not only not only are you anyway you know facing a conservative system and a conservative society but we have layers of casteism that play a role we have layers of social economic privilege that plays a role so with every like added layer the harder it gets for you i i remember when i put the piece out people were sending me screenshots of them sending the video on their like family groups and oh talking about their own sexual assault stories and how they use this poem as a trigger to start a conversation with a friend or even educate their male friends about what it's like being a woman but none of these were things i was thinking about when i was writing i and something else i felt the need to mention even in that piece was at that point in my life even now i do see men in my life like putting an effort to not only unlearn but to sensitize themselves to these things and in the poem there's a line so i asked my male friend to drop me home because his privilege will protect mine and i think that drives the point so through because even to this date when i you know step out for a party if i'm going out somewhere the first thing i do is i send my location to my girlfriends and my mom if i'm going on a date they'll receive the number of the person and these are just survival methods that have become normal that so often men either don't know happen or just don't have to experience 
So uh, when I was writing that piece, I was initially thinking about let's talk about one thing in specific, but I realized that there was there wasn't an effective way of really talking about one thing without acknowledging how every other thing that we are okay with being complicit in play a part. As you say, you broke the silence on the terrible reality of violence against women with that poem, with great sophistication, as you say, you know, the layering you you tackle in, in that piece of writing is so impressive. And of course, it had an incredible impact. How did you feel when it hit over a million views, I believe, in just two days? Honestly, I don't think it really really set in. When the video hit 100 views, I made a joke to my father. I was saying, you know, you need to start getting me bodyguards now because I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm a big deal now. So I feel like after it hit over, say, 300 people, I couldn't really fathom it because I felt like it wasn't quantifiable in my head, if that makes sense. I can imagine 100 people. I can imagine 300 people. But I can't imagine a billion people, you know? And it was the weirdest form of culture shock to experience where I was sitting in Bombay at my house writing and, you know, seeing people respond to these things and realizing that even countries that are supposed to be safer still very much have these problems. I feel like there were so many things that were so specific to my demographic. I think that's why I called it the Brown Girl's Guide to Gender. I thought this was a very specific piece that only a certain kind of people would understand. But I, I realized at a later point that it's not just us. Like, doesn't matter how much of a safer country it may be. Misogyny and patriarchy is still very much ingrained and structural. Not only are women impacted by this, any gender, irrespective of how you are, who you are, what you identify with, has been impacted by a structure that specifically benefits a certain kind of people. Well, as you say, it's a global issue and your poem has resonated the world over. And I just think how important it must be to your young fan base throughout the world watching a recording of you reciting A Brown Girl's Guide to Gender and what kind of like tools that can give them to empower themselves. So it's, it's such an important piece. Being a spoken word artist, a performance poet, I imagine that you draw on the energy of the crowd when you get to perform. Have you been missing physical performances? A hundred percent. So much. I can't begin to explain. There's nothing like it. And I love getting the jitters before you get on stage and the little like mummers once you get off stage, little chatter before the event ends. I miss all of it. Uh, but I'm, it's something I'm willing to compromise on for the safety of the audience members and of course my family. So we do online events now, which aren't the same at all because, you know, when you're performing for an audience you can see people respond to certain lines you say smile at certain things all of these little things play a part in how you perform or if you know the people if they're enjoying the piece or what part of the piece they're enjoying you know even in brown girls guide to gender there's a part where i moan on stage which is not only It not only made me feel a little bit out of my skin, but I think that was the very purpose of doing it. It was the fact that that hyper-awareness of hearing a young girl moan on a mic in a, you know, room full of people, that's not something you'd experience. The only time you're hearing a young girl moan is probably by yourself. 
But when you're there at that moment and you're being confronted with a situation like that, it really makes you hyper aware. You get a little, um, you're more conscious about what you're doing, how you're sitting. You know, if I'm uh, in an, if I'm performing, I can see, you know, men start fidgeting with their sleeves. Women, if they have uh, dupattas on, if they have kurtis on, you know, whatever they're playing with, they get a little fidgety because it's definitely something that demands for you to acknowledge it. So much of editing happens with an audience's feedback. But until then, I'm very much writing. I'm also exploring music for the first time. So um, I'm really excited to express myself in a new art form. Oh, well, I cannot wait until we can move around in the world and then maybe I'll get the opportunity to see you perform in person. That would be just amazing. The source of your um, storytelling and activism and your change maker role is in spoken word. But wh- when did you start to think that social media would be a good place to spread that word? I think social media has always been a part of my life, given the, given the fact that I'm 22. So I was I was very much at the age where we had a computer room, we had a PC. Uh, I used to, um, you know, like have my parents log me in to play games. So it's very much been a part of my life. And it dawned on me that a lot of how I educated myself came from the internet. So I feel like if if I had the opportunity of learning so much from the internet, that I could definitely be a facilitator of that. But at the same time, I do face this responsibility of where um, a lot of creators tend to like, a lot of us tend to speak without accurate information or without like not well-informed, you know, comments. So I'm trying to really like educate myself and be very like, even give people a little bit more to sit with, a little bit more to read. Uh, so whenever I'm like referring to something, if I mention a paper or something, I try to link it on my Instagram because I feel like our profiles have been personal profiles for the longest time. But we're only now beginning to realize that everything is political. It is so structural and it's about realizing that it's only through platforms like these that we can also create that change. So you'll see a lot of us, you know, like you'll see so many of us um, trying to like spread information about protests, try to uh, have online, um, like, for example, on Twitter, if there's like a certain um, a certain thing we have to bring awareness about, there'll be twi- uh, tw- uh, Twitter storms where we will specifically talk about that to bring more awareness to it. So I love the power the Internet has. And I think the Internet doesn't only play a part in educating, but it plays a part in organizing, which is immense power which is incredible to see so I'm very hopeful about how the internet is going to impact activism and it's definitely going to make it more accessible to people now it's just about making sure we're doing it the right way I wanted to talk to you about what happens when a woman takes to a global platform to talk about misogyny and equality unfortunately you and I know that it always attracts the trolls of the internet. And that is um, something that's so devastating um, to people who have the kind of um, the courage to put out progressive views. What keeps you sane when you're reading those horrific comments? I think uh, I'm still figuring it out, you know. I think I feel there are times when I think I've definitely reached a better place where it doesn't affect me as much. But at the time the video went up, I was around 17 or 18. And 
one of the things I struggled with was isolating who I was from the person that everyone was directing this anger at. I think they were more upset with the ideas and maybe the words rather than me saying it. And I wasn't ready to experience that. But at the same time, it's so unfortunate. I feel like, you know, as much as like women who, you know, speak about progressive ideas face these trolls, I think it doesn't matter how political or non-political your work may be. You are still very much like cannibalized on the internet if you are a woman. And um, it's really hard when your identity is used is used as an attack. And I remember just asking myself, like, wh- what did I say? What did I say in that poem that was that radical an idea? You know, I, I, nothing in that poem, when I look at it, seems like something that radical that would evoke a reaction like this. I remember once when I was talking to my mom, when I, I got sent some message about some terrorist group to like planning to inflict something on me and my mother naturally got tensed and I said mom if Malala got shot in the head for asking to read and educate herself then what's another woman doing the same like if this is what it's gonna take to to trigger this conversation I will volunteer and just as we like people have been volunteering for years for centuries what's another name on the list but I truly feel it shouldn't take people losing their lives for there to be a trigger of a conversation which is why brown girls guide to gender meant so much to me because most of the times we have these conversations about patriarchy and misogyny in our in our society specifically in India happens when there is a popular rape case or where um, you know that it's been very graphic or there mm-hmm. hasn't been uh, justice you know served but that was one time I got to speak without the trigger of someone's death on our hands or rape on our hands there wasn't a fatality that caused that poem I mean not a particular one Um, I just got to like demand that space for for those few moments and say this is something we need to speak about but that we only speak about after things have gone wrong right what a minefield for you to be um, (laughs) you know dealing with and I agree with you truly it's it's just shocking to hear how extreme that online hatred has has been. I mean, India has its share of headlines when it comes to misogyny and violence against women. It's too big a topic to cover in the time that we have here. But I mean, can you just pinpoint for us, if you can, what are the roots of this mindset? I think there are multiple layers to it. To begin with, this is definitely a lot of patriarchal structures and misogyny stem from this idea of a disbalance of power. And as I was saying, it doesn't just affect women, it also affects men, which is why this becomes a power dynamic. Over that in India, we have multiple layers that make a difference. So for example, I am still from an affluent caste, which means that I still have it easier than other people who live in India do. In fact, if you were an upper caste woman and you were to experience something that, whether it was a rape, whether it was some kind of sexual assault, you would still have a lot more accessibility to, to talk about it for you know mainstream media to cover it as compared to if you were from a lower caste or a marginalized society or a marginalized community. There are so many layers. Even the news that, that makes it out of India 
are usually of people who are still from affluent backgrounds. We hear so often of Dalit people who are being killed unfairly, of girls who are raped, of girls who are poisoned and killed, something as recent as a few weeks ago. And, you know, while I say this, it's it's so unfortunate that it takes such a dehumanization of mm. their bodies to get people to empathize with them. I shouldn't have to uh, talk explicitly about how, about the atrocities of the violence they face to get someone to empathize with them, you know. But now that there's more information about this being brought up, more awareness about, like, the kind of imbalanced caste plays, people are educating themselves more, but it's still a very particular circle it's still this I would say it's online it's still elite a lot of the discourse happens in English which is anyway is not as accessible so I think it's definitely going to take time but it takes acknowledging your privilege in moments like this that um, enable more of those conversations to happen as you say you you are part of this new generation um, speaking out and changing minds and I, I wanted to ask do you feel optimistic for the future I think we don't have any option but to feel optimistic. Mm -hmm. I think that's, you know, any activist you meet, as hopeless we may feel at certain times, our optimism is what makes us, like, is what makes us activists. It's this idea that we expect better of our nation, expect better of our government, expect better of each other, that really brings about this want, this need, this urge to bring about a society that doesn't only cater, benefit and privilege a certain kind of people. So I think you need to be unapologetically optimistic, but you also need to be realistic about these things. As I said, I feel like even with being realistic, there are very often being realistic comes with this connotation of being kind of pessimistic. You're like, this change is not going to be quick, but that doesn't mean it, we don't put in the effort. I love unapologetic optimism, but as you say, <laughs> without naivety, but I, yes. I mean, be beautifully put. Aranya, another key, very important poem is the brilliant Brown Girl's Guide to Beauty, which if people haven't watched you perform, I urge you all to watch because it is quite brilliant. And you challenge the politics and the biases that you have faced head on about beauty norms in India. It was a, a little while ago that you re recorded that poem. Do you think things are changing? Yes and no, because I feel the bigger corporations are still at a place where they can still benefit of not, you know, exploring these politics. I'm seeing some bigger corporations that are educating themselves about where they've messed up in the past as well and attempting to rectify it. So I am hopeful that there will be change. I am seeing, you know, uh, a certain amount of difference since that poem has come out. Um, looking back on it, I remember my friend was telling me that she believes, you know how we speak about foot binding as a form of torture that women used to experience in um, Southeast Asia, that maybe in the future they'll talk about hair removal like that. Like, did you, like, can you imagine uh, 20,000 years ago, women used to wax their hair off. <laughs> Isn't that absolutely absurd? But for now, it's normal. Like, it's what we, it's how we live. It's, it's a way of life for us. But I hope in due time that this is as absurd as a concept as it is, as it may be, you know, a few years down the line. From sneaking into a club as a kid to perform <laughs> to your global platform today, Aranya, what would you say are your most memorable 
moments on your change-making journey? Mm, I think one of them definitely was in Brown Girl's Guide to Gender, I mentioned Lakshmi, who was a survivor of an acid attack in India. Mm. And um, she reached out to me after hearing the piece. And I had never interacted with her before. The fact that I got to write about her and at some point got to interact with her was such an immense honor to me. Yeah. Over that, I had the immense privilege of working with Malala Yousafzai, Emma Watson, Nadia Murad. So all of these, you know, incredible women that reach these platforms by just, you know, asking for I, what I feel is the bare minimum. Making changes scary. It involves going against the grain, challenging accepted narratives, speaking up. It can be lonely. Um, has that been your experience? Have you felt lonely or have you felt connected? I think these experiences in itself is made in a way that it feels very isolating, but it's something many people experience. Um, so I think when it just, like when the video just went up and all of this was you know, I was getting all this feedback, the love and the hate. Um, it was a very isolating experience because I didn't have anyone I could discuss this with. No one who could have told me what it was going to be like. No one who could, who thought maybe, you know, they could prep me for something like this. Because frankly, no one has, you know, in my circle experienced something like this. So it was a lot of like navigating it by myself. Which is why now when I see, you know, younger creators who are exploring and they're getting bigger platforms, I'm always telling them like, you know, don't take the love too seriously and don't even take the hate too seriously. Keep uh, working on your art and um, take time for yourself. You know, like small things I wish someone had told me when, you know, all of this started happening, when the video went up, when it made rounds. I don't feel as alone as I did initially. I think a lot of other activists who have also been on the same boat, we've kind of trauma bonded. In fact, you know, um, it's so funny to think of it. A lot of my close friends now are also other activists in the scene here. And half of my friendships with them have triggered off the fact that either they were being horribly trolled online and I sent them a message of support or it was the other way around. So it's it's so unfortunate that it takes something that vile to trigger that kind of connection. But it's the kind of connection that it's a very, like, you know, the other person understands exactly what you're going through, but they let you feel your feelings, which is an important, important part of the process, not denying how this makes you feel. So important. You are connected in the seen in India and beyond. But who are the other young change makers who really inspire you, Aranya? You might know one of them because she's from the UK, Amika George. She's absolutely incredible. So most of these spaces that I end up, that I've got the honour of being in, have usually resulted in a way that I'm usually one of the few women, one of the few women of colour, or one of the few younger people. And I got to meet Amika at an event where it was another young brown girl who was being celebrated for her efforts. And it was just so lovely to not be the only person there to deal with that kind of representation. There is a few from India, I would say, is Meena Kandaswamy. Um, we have Faye D'Souza. More globally, we have Crystal Valentine, who's an incredible black poet. 
I feel like even some of I feel like I could even name a few like for example I feel like even Kendrick Lamar has very much written protest poetry. So I think um it's not only you find inspiration in not just conventional spaces sometimes it's finding yourself in a line of work or in a space that you would never be in. It's about finding yourself in someone that you ideally would never have had the chance to find. Yes, those are incredible voices and yours Aranya is a very exciting voice. Thank you for being so thoughtful and honest and inspiring today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining us. It really it means a lot to us. Thank you so much. I'm very very honored I got to be a part. And honestly, one important like opportunity you gave me is to also say I don't know certain things. So, thank you for taking that kindly. Have a wonderful day. You too. Bye. Changemakers was brought to you by Netaforte and Chalk and Blade. Hosted by Sarah Bailey and Alice Casely Hayford and produced by Laura Hyde. The executive producer is Ruth Barnes. Original music and engineering by Alex Port Felix. Enter the code CHANGEMAKERS at the checkout for 10% off your first Netaporte order. T's and C's and exclusions apply. Thank you.